Welcome to episode 19. You know, we're all about Christian cultural commentary here, but there are certain things that celebrities, musicians, and Hollywood personalities will do as publicity stunts or for intentional shock value that we don't need to give any time or attention to because doing so would give them exactly what they sought in the first place. This past week, a hip-hop artist whose name I, I will not mention, though I've talked about him in the past, released a highly blasphemous music video. And this after he released numerous social media posts declaring his conversion to Christianity, claiming that his satanic appeal that he's become known for was forced upon him by the music industry, and then only to bait and switch all of those who fell for the stunt. But many have wondered if Kanye West did the exact same thing. I'm not so sure because Kanye West gave shallow allusions to God in, in a lot of his work uh, leading up to his conversion, if you want to call it that, uh, though that was entirely diluted by the rest of the vulgarity in his lyrics, the most obvious being his song, Jesus Walks. But he professes some sort of conversion to Christianity and, in fact, some repentance. Uh, he makes an entire gospel rap album, but then he was uh, excoriated by the church, uh, by a lot in the church, and, and lambasted by his former friends in the industry. His marriage fell apart, which I believe was because of his newfound beliefs, and now he's back to where he was. So I think Kanye's story is a little bit different from the first a person who is deliberately taking advantage of Christians to mock them, which is to mock Christ, all for attention and plays and likes and clicks and views. Christians need to remember these things whenever they see something like the trailer for a movie called The Book of Clarence, which is a movie where all of the biblical characters are played by black people, that is, except for the the white people playing the Romans, and the titular character Clarence is the fictional brother of the disciple Thomas. Clarence is literally a, a first century drug dealer who owes some, some people some money, so he pretends to work the same miracles as Christ to take people's money. Watch this. I'm Clarence. Where I'm from, you fight to survive. I'm not a bad person. Just playing the cards I was dealt. Mom, one day I'm gonna get you out of here. I have a plan. What are we doing here? Jesus lives there. Hallelujah, baby. I want to be like that in 10 years. I want to be like that now. I need to figure out what inspires him. I can just replicate what he does. Imagine the money people will give us. Oh, dead one, open your eyes. Elijah. What are you trying to prove? And I'm not a nobody. You find faith, and you will find all the answers. When you see me, say hallelujah. Parents, you are guilty of the crime fraud for your own ill-gotten gains. If you give me Jesus of Nazareth, I will let you walk free. And I will give you power, wealth. You'll be somebody. I die before I give him up to Rome. Then death it is. Uh. 
My congregation gon' operate like a corporation. I want my flowers and flower vases. I want carnations. I want begonias. I want petunias and flower corners. Run! Cause I'm a god, so when you see me, say hallelujah. Once, in spite of your selfish ways, there's a beautiful soul in there somewhere. Hallelujah, and I'm a god, so when you see me, say hallelujah. Jesus of Nazareth. I'm a god, so when you see me, say hallelujah. I'm destined to be here. Now, this isn't just blasphemy. I'm calling all of this spiritual appropriation. And Christianity Today, the magazine, gave this, this movie a glowing review, by the way. But I have to say, there's, there's a bunch of acclaimed artists who invoke or evoke Christianity in their lyrics or their public persona, like... Country music singers, Hollywood actors, popular athletes, but their lives and all the work around these references don't demonstrate the fruit of someone who's fully given themselves to following Jesus. And this is because it's basically an impossibility to be a genuine Christian with celebrity status at this point. Jesus practically said as much to his disciples. He told them that people would hate them because of their identity in him. So just remember that the next time a star talks about Jesus. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. One of the best ways you can help our show other than by sharing the content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you were meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug. Or you can support the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free crest tee. We've even got stickers and a smells like freedom candle, that's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. Com. Though the campaigns began almost two years ago now, the presidential election truly kicked off this week in the state of Iowa, which has confirmed just about everything many have predicted, including myself, that this is quite obviously Donald Trump's race as he pulled in over 50% of the votes this week in that state. We'll talk about the results in just a moment, but first... I wanted to begin by clarifying the primary process here in America. Uh, though there have been, there have often been uh, independent candidates on numerous ballots in our short history, uh, the United States is largely a dual-party system. The governments, local, state, and federal, are overwhelmingly allegiant to these two controlling parties, the, the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, there are the national organizations for these parties, like the GOP and the DNC, and then the more localized versions of them in states and counties and cities, etc. These primary elections can simply be described as each state deciding who they want to run in the general election in November. However, because of our federalist system that the states operate and, and govern themselves within the Union, thanks to the brilliance of our founders. Uh, the primaries function differently depending on which state we're talking about. So depending on the state, there is a mess of types of primaries one might participate in. Um, some sort of range between 
what we call open primaries and closed primaries. Let's talk about it. In a closed primary, only voters who are registered members of a specific political party can participate in that party's election. Currently, there are eight states like this in the U.S. who hold closed primaries. They are Delaware, Florida, Kentucky, Nevada, New Mexico, New York, Pennsylvania, and Wyoming. So in order to vote in these states, your registration has to reflect your party affiliation. For example, a registered Democrat in Florida cannot participate in the Republican primary for that state. On the other side, in an open primary, any registered voter, regardless of their political affiliation, can participate in the primary election and choose a party's candidate. Uh, there are 16 of these states in the U.S. Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Hawaii, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, North Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, and Wisconsin. In those 16 states, any person uh, can vote for whomever they choose, regardless of their, their voter history or their party affiliation. Now, between those, there are three variant primary systems between uh, open and closed, partially closed, uh, partially open, and open to affiliated. I'll explain. First, we have partially closed primaries. Uh, here we have parties choosing, basically each election, whether to allow um, unaffiliated voters or voters that aren't registered with the given party to participate in their nominating contest, again, before each election cycle. So they could, they could admit unaffiliated voters while still excluding members of opposing parties. That's why it's sort of open. This gives the parties more flexibility from year to year about uh, which voters to include. And there's eight of these states in the U.S. Connecticut, Idaho, Maryland, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, and West Virginia. Secondly, we have partially open primaries. Um, in these primaries, registered affiliated voters can cross party lines, but they must publicly declare their choice. So a registered Democrat who, let's say, they're fed up with the sitting president can effectively switch parties on primary day. And there are five of these states in the union, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, New Jersey, and Ohio. And finally, third in this spectrum of primary systems, we have those that are open to unaffiliated voters. The only distinction between this system and just an open system is that registered party members cannot vote in the opposing party's primary, like a registered Democrat could not vote in the Republican primary, but those that are unaffiliated with a party, or they're, they're not a registered party member, can vote in whatever primary they like. There are eight of these states, Arizona, Colorado, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. Now, if you're keeping count of all those, that's only 45 states, and that's because there are a few other primary processes. For example, California and Washington use the much-debated top-two format, where all the candidates, regardless of party, are listed on the same ballot, and then the top-two vote-getters head to the general election. 
In similar fashion, Louisiana does this top two format, yet they have a, a closed primary. Plus, their primary is, is a winner-take-all process. So all of the, the registered Republicans will get together this spring, uh, and the majority winner will be rewarded all of their delegates, which I'll explain in just a moment. But in the general election this November, non-affiliated uh, Louisiana voters will have their first vote in the process. And if none of the candidates garner more than half the votes, then the top two head off head to a, a runoff six weeks later. Nebraska also utilizes this top two system with a possible uh, runoff, but they make the voting nonpartisan, meaning uh, the candidates, parties, and and your political affiliations are irrelevant. But uh, like th they're not even listed on the ballot, and this is in fact how things are here in uh, Knoxville. And finally, you have Alaska with an ent entirely unique top four open primary. Now, again, this is how each state effectively declares who they want to run as their party's nominee for president. But these stately expressions are nationally voiced at the conventions, the RNC and the DNC, by individuals known as delegates. In similar fashion to congressional allotment, each state's number of delegates is based on their population. Now, in similar complexity to the primary voting systems, uh, the delegation allocations differ from state to state. It, it may be proportional allotment, meaning the, the statewide vote determines a proportional delegation, as in the person who got the most votes gets the most delegates. Uh, some states award by a threshold. For example, if a candidate gets 50% of the votes in a given state, then they are awarded all of the delegates for the national convention. However, there are some states that simply award all the delegates to whomever received the most votes. So whether it's a primary or a caucus, a caucus being sort of like a, a miniature convention within the given states, uh, the delegates are ultimately chosen to be as representative as possible for all the people of the state. After the primary or caucus, uh, state parties decide who each of their delegates will be. Uh, these are those who will uh, attend the party's national convention. And this is where the official nomination of the party's candidate for president takes place. For the Republicans, the RNC, over 2,400 delegates will gather in the middle of July to nominate the Republican candidate for the general election in November. The DNC will host nearly 4,000 delegates in late August who will decide who their nominee will be for the general election. This person will have to win the support of at least 1,969 of those Democrat delegates. As you know, the Iowa caucuses wrapped up on Monday night with almost 110,000 Iowans voicing their preference for the party's nominee for president. Iowa awards delegates based on proportionality. So of Iowa's 40 possible delegates, Donald Trump receiving 51% of the votes was awarded 20 delegates. Ron DeSantis received eight delegates because he received just over 21% of the votes. Nikki Haley gained seven delegates because she received about 19% of the votes. 
And Ramaswamy even got three delegates because he obtained over 7% of the votes, though he ultimately dropped out. That means that 40 Iowans will be headed to the RNC this summer, with over half of them nominating Donald Trump for president. Now, Iowa was first in line in this process, but next are the January 23rd primaries in New Hampshire, a state which has a slightly open process of allowing unaffiliated voters to participate in a given party's primary. Again, this means that registered party members cannot vote in the opposing party's primary. Nikki Haley is reportedly exploiting this system to get unaffiliated Democrats to vote for her in the Republican primary. The Federalist Sean Fleetwood said, Similarly, in New Hampshire, some operatives are trying to get Democrat-leaning unaffiliated voters to cast their ballots for Haley in the Granite State's semi-closed primary on January 23rd. The tactic reflects a strategy Haley herself bragged about when she told reporters last month, if we get independence, if we get conservative Democrats, that's what the Republican Party should pursue. Our goal is to get as many people in the tent as we can. Now, New Hampshire also awards delegates on a proportional basis, so I'm not really sure why so many media outlets are acting as if Haley's efforts in New Hampshire would be such a blow to the Trump campaign. Plus, she tried this very tactic in Iowa, and you can see how that turned out. The most interesting development of the evening, and Anthony Salvanto will, will find this to be very interesting indeed, they had 50 forms for people who wanted to register tonight or switch their party registration. They ran out of those forms. Members of the caucus team here had to run out to multiple people's homes to get printer paper and get their printers fired up. They printed another 25 or so sheets of paper. They estimate about 75 people were new registrations or switched their registration from Democrat to Republican in order to play in this caucus tonight. And I think that's a big reason why Nikki Haley uh, was lifted up. You're getting a little noise here as they clean up. Uh, was so uh, impressive in this particular outing. If she can repeat that, because we're talking about 20% of the vote here, thereabouts, give or take, uh, were new registrations or crossovers, and that is above the typical rate. You see estimates about 10% in a typical open caucus. So if she can outperform in counties like this one at caucus sites like this one, then that bodes well for her ability to have a strong second, which of course is what her campaign really wants to drive the narrative into New Hampshire. Now, I know liberals have a hard time with this sort of thing, but the reporter was speaking from a single polling location in the entire state. So if we apply that percentage rate across the entire state, let's say, this is actually humiliating for the Haley campaign because it, it demonstrates a large chunk of her votes came from non-affiliated Democrats, which should tell you everything you need to know about Nikki Haley. The point is, the strategy didn't quite work, so I don't think it will in New Hampshire and everywhere else. Now, although Ramaswamy, Hutchison, and Christie have dropped out, I don't think you'll see DeSantis or Haley drop out anytime soon, but if they do, I'd say it won't be until March. Although you have four states handing out uh, delegates in February, March is crammed full of primaries and caucuses for both parties. March 5th is known as Super Tuesday, where 16 states will vote for their respective party's nominee. On this single day, 874 delegates are awarded to whoever the candidates are. That's more than a third 
of the total delegates. Therefore, it's, it's very likely we'll know exactly who the nominee is this early before the actual convention in July because the rules essentially change in the middle of March when the, the remaining states have the option of awarding all their delegates to the frontrunner. In other words, it serves the purpose of either creating a toss-up or quickly identifying the winner, quickly. But let's say that every single state awarded delegates proportionally to the votes. Statistically, Trump wins the exact amount of delegates he needs to become the party's nominee. Now, why don't I think DeSantis and Haley will drop out? I think they're running for second place, uh, not to become some sort of cabinet member or vice president, as I believe Ramaswamy is, but because of the legal path Trump has ahead of him, he's currently dealing with Maine and Colorado attempting to remove him from the primary processes in those states and maybe add to that Oregon, Arizona, and West Virginia. He has the E. Jean Carroll stuff going on right now, the New York uh, civil fraud trial, election interference cases in New York and Georgia, criminal cases, civil trials, classified documents, etc., etc. So I think Haley and DeSantis have burned their bridges with Trump. Um, they're hoping he gets kneecapped by one of these things, but the man is Teflon Don, and so far, nothing has stopped him. I think that Trump will now absorb Ramaswamy's votes, especially after his endorsement. I also think uh, support will now dwindle for DeSantis and Haley, given their performance in this first caucus. Another reason I feel this is Trump's race is the turnout in Iowa. Yes, Iowa's caucus processes uh, and just caucuses in general are more difficult to participate in uh, than a simple primary ballot process, but only about 100,000 Iowan voters out of almost 2 million showed up to vote. And, and that's because I think most of them know what I know, that this is Trump's race. Speaking of Iowa, you may not have heard of a recent shooting at Perry High School. And that's probably because it wasn't the beneficial sort of gun violence story that the mainstream media usually prefers. But I'll be sure to tell you about it because the story demonstrates an important societal cultural truth, which you'll see in just a moment. Libs of TikTok chronicled this entire story in great detail because Chaya Rychik is uh, a better investigative journalist with more backbone than the majority of mainstream journalists and reporters. Now, I'm only going to name the shooter because the point I'm making is that he is a touchstone for a significant issue in American culture, and no, I'm not talking about gun violence. His name, is, his name was Dylan Butler, a 17-year-old student of uh, the high school there. First, um, this is what the Iowa Department of Public Safety published. On January 5th, 2024, the Iowa State Medical Examiner performed the autopsies on the two decedents from the Perry High School active shooter event. The deceased Perry Middle School student has been identified as 11-year-old Amir Jalif. Amir's cause of death was determined to be multiple gunshot wounds, three in total, and his manner of death has been ruled a homicide. The deceased shooter was confirmed to be 17-year-old Dylan Butler. Butler's cause of death was determined to be from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and his manner of death has been ruled a suicide. 
A total of seven other individuals received wounds or injuries of varying degree during the shooting event, an increase of two from prior reports. Three of the victims are school staff members and four are students. Perry High School Principal Dan Marburger has been identified as having suffered multiple gunshot wounds and remains in critical condition. The investigation thus far confirms Principal Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. At this time, Principal Marburger and two students remain hospitalized. The remaining have been treated and released. The investigation is ongoing. Investigators have seized large volumes of digital and social media evidence that will take time to review. Background investigations as well as eyewitness accounts and victim interviews are continuing. Once the investigation is complete, the DCI's investigative report will be turned over to the Dallas County Attorney's Office to determine what additional course of action, if any, should be undertaken. In other words, Dylan came to school with a couple of guns and apparently an IED and shot eight people, excluding himself. The one deceased victim is an 11-year-old boy, while the others were varying students and staff members, including the heroic principal who put his life on the line for some of his students. Now, before we get to Dylan's personal details, there are a couple more important details, these from the Des Moines Register. Before the shooting, Butler had posted a selfie on TikTok of him in a bathroom stall with a blue duffel bag by his feet. The caption read, Now we wait. And I'm going to show you all of this in just a moment. The Register continues. The TikTok post, which has since been taken down along with Butler's social media accounts, was accompanied by the song Stray Bullet by rock group KMFDM. The song infamously was used on the personal website of Eric Harris, one of the shooters of the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999. Ah, so you see, Dylan looked up to the very first school shooter, but the register is saying the referenced song was the inlaid music with the video post that he captioned, uh, Now We Wait. Butler made numerous social media posts in and around the time of the shooting, Investigators are looking into those posts as part of the investigation. Yes, and I'm about to show you some of those. Dylan Butler was found in the school of what appeared to be the shooter with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police found and disposed of an IED found in the school. Butler had a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. This is one of the reasons for the media's ignorance. Here we have a, a local outlet reporting the facts, but for the national media and for congressional politics, it's inconvenient for them because there wasn't an assault rifle, as they call it, uh, used in the violence. Now he used a, a standard handgun, probably a, a 22 caliber pistol or a 380, and he used a shotgun. And the report doesn't say anything about the homemade explosive, only that it was found and destroyed. So we don't know if there was an explosive technician who was able to disarm it or what. Now, the following images were published by Libs of TikTok, aka uh, Chaya Raichik, on X or Twitter. And thanks to Elon Musk, the information wasn't censored. The first image is from Dylan's TikTok page. We'll take a look at one of those posts in just a moment. But first, I want you to notice here that the only thing posted in his bio section is a pride flag emoji. This next image is a screenshot from the aforementioned TikTok post. 
Dylan posted this video just before he took a little boy's life and tried to take many others. Now we wait, he says, to the song connected to the Columbine shooter. Libs of TikTok said, in another post, he put the hashtag gender fluid. Gender fluidity is apparently among medical professionals and elite academics who make up all of this nonsense. A non-fixed gender identity that shifts over time or depending on the situation. Now, technically, this aligns under the transgender umbrella of the Rainbow Coalition. That's why there's uh, a pride flag in his bio, and that's why he posted this shared by Libs of TikTok. Again, this is a screenshot from TikTok. I'm describing uh, everything for those of you who are listeners. It's Dylan apparently pretending to offer some guy a, a drink, and the caption reads, Bro, I thought I was sharing my Gatorade. He's mad. And then there are a handful of emojis, including the transgender flag. This is the post, which also features the hashtag genderfluid, which you can see in the bottom of that image. Libs of TikTok said his account was dark and morbid, a deeply disturbed person. And she referenced other posts, but said things were being removed so quickly from TikTok and Instagram that she couldn't save them all. Here's another image shared on his TikTok account. It's simply a spray-painted wall which reads, Love your trans kids. This is a screenshot of Dylan's Instagram bio. Again, you can see the pride flag. But this site also includes the, the preferred pronoun section. And Dylan, being gender fluid, prefers the pronouns he and they. There was another story that we covered last year which, coincidentally, the media largely overlooked due to its inconvenience, and that was the Nashville Christian School shooter, Audrey Hill, who was also trans-identifying and suicidal. I recommend you watch that segment, and I'll link it in the video. Um, we have no idea what the shooter's motive was, and, and we, didn't, uh, we didn't know what Audrey Hill's was until Steven Crowder leaked some of her manifesto, and I did some digging on her background. But I suspect Dylan's story would be remarkably similar. He probably experienced something traumatic as a child. He was probably brainwashed on social media by the trans mafia. His gleeful looks and, and his posts leading up to the shooting were exactly like Audrey's. The point is, transgenderism is more than just someone's mental disorientation. It's not just the mental and sexual manifestations of their physiological or their psychological problems to be fixed by counseling or therapy or medication. No, it's, it's another symptom of a spiritually corrupted individual, perhaps acquainted with the literal forces of evil because demonic influences and, and possessions are frequently related to sexual perversion, trust me. And when... Affirmations and, and medications weren't enough to make Dylan feel like himself. He turned to killing others and himself. Now, of course, no politician or media figure can say any of that. No, because we have to keep perpetuating this nonsense, this evil, in fact. Because, don't you know, this is, this is the modern morality. In order to be truly virtuous in this day and age... We must applaud the insane person who says that they are what they are not. And 
this as, as Dylan and Audrey slay innocent children and school staff members. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is often attributed with saying, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. While there are many who speak in blind support of this movement, many are inadvertently on the same team by their own inaction and silence. To those that are speaking up on this subject, I thank you. But unfortunately, the ones who are speaking the most and the loudest are not even the Christian church. And that's embarrassing. This, this Christian church is, is one of the symptoms of our massive failure of being the salt and light of the culture around us. Many, so many people, the majority, are floundering in the dark. Nothing of, of godly value is, is being preserved. We must speak against this literal lunacy and just think about it. Loving God means loving this person. And loving this person is telling them the life-saving, eternal truth they need to hear. And I don't just mean physical life, like their life on this earth, but eternal life. So ask yourself, what did Dylan and Audrey need to hear that could have saved their souls for eternity? They needed to hear that they were deeply immersed in, in wickedness, mired in sexual sin, and desperately needed to repent in order to find true fulfillment in Christ. In this sense, affirmation is the least loving thing you could say to them. In fact, in doing so, you're practically condemning them into eternal damnation. Loving God and loving trans people means telling them the truth which could actually save their souls. Regardless of the amount of people you will still see wearing masks in public, it's been four years since COVID-19 spread throughout the world, and many of the things once considered fringe conspiracy theories were proven to be true. The, the origin of, of the virus being a lab leak from gain-of-function research, uh, that lab receiving supplementary funding from the National Institute of Health, uh, the effectiveness, effectiveness of lockdowns and, and quarantines, the efficacy of masks, the accumulating side effects of, of the vaccines, um, the opposition to proven medicines and therapeutics, and I could go on and on and on. There were so many things of which we were told to trust the experts, but it took four years and countless lives to prove that the experts weren't really experts at all. They were just mouthpieces for Big Pharma and the globalists, and these two are basically one and the same. Perhaps there is no greater amalgamation of globalists than the World Economic Forum, which holds its annual conference every January, and they just so happen to meet this week to discuss a number of potential problems they can solve with their money, power, and influence. Because, as any historian knows, the centralization of power always leads to good things, right? Well, their top priority and panel discussion at this year's meeting was titled in the itinerary as, quote, Preparing for Disease X, which was set to be held yesterday at 11.30 Central European time. 
the schedule from the WEF read the following. With fresh warnings from the World Health Organization that an unknown disease X could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic, what novel efforts are needed to prepare, to prepare healthcare systems for the multiple challenges ahead? In other words, the WEF is discussing warnings from the WHO, another globalist organization, about an unknown hypothetical disease vastly more lethal than COVID. Now, we've heard this nomenclature, Disease X, before. In fact, let's wind the clocks back to 2017. At 2017's World Economic Forum, the Overlords launched CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which was their global initiative to fight epidemics. The initiative was mainly focused on, you guessed it, vaccines for global emergencies. And guess who some of the investors were? the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the governments of Germany, Japan, Norway, and the United States. In fact, we donated nearly half a billion dollars to this initiative. That means your money went there. About three years later, a bizarre virus started uh, ripping its way through the Chinese city of Wuhan. That January, the World Economic Forum held its annual meeting, at which CEPI, the initiative that we helped fund, established plans with Moderna to develop a vaccine. Ironically, the, the Moderna vaccine has become the most notorious for its adverse effects, and, and that's according to CDC data, not me. But there's an important point to this timeline. The forum met between January 21 and 24 in 2020, when COVID uh, cases were, were just in the hundreds, and, and uh, Less than 100, in fact, less than 50 had died from it. And yet, somehow they knew what would come of it. And six days after the conference concluded, the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency. And this is, of course, when our government and politicians and media members were a little preoccupied with impeaching Donald Trump again. That next month, in February 2020, the New York Times published an opinion piece from Peter Daszak, an expert in parasitic disease, a disease ecologist, and co-founder of Echo Health Alliance, which he founded in 2001. The piece was titled, We Knew Disease X Was Coming, It's Here Now, and the subtitle was, We Need to Stop What Drives Mass Epidemics Rather Than Just Respond to Individual Diseases. Well, you don't have to have a PhD to know that an epidemic or a pandemic is an unstoppable force which can only be mitigated, not prevented. Just consider, despite the lockdowns, forced vaccinations, and other global initiatives against coronavirus, the virus just about made its way through every single person on the planet. So you already know before I read you anything from this article that whatever he proposed in February 2020 would ultimately become unsuccessful but it's important for today's context. Here's what Dr. Dazak said. In early 2018, during a meeting at the World Health Organization in Geneva, a group of experts I belong to coined the term disease X. We were referring to the next pandemic, which would be caused by an unknown novel pathogen that hadn't yet entered the human population. As the world stands today on the edge of the pandemic precipice, 
it's worth taking a moment to consider whether COVID-19 is the disease our group was warning about. So far, you can see that disease X was, was and purely is hypothetical. So shortly after we helped create CEPI, the globalists began spinning a hypothetical scenario of a global disease and how they would respond to this pretend sickness. Disease X, we said back then, would likely result from a virus originating in animals and would emerge somewhere on the planet where economic development drives people and wildlife together. Now, it is a proven fact that Dr. Dazak's Echo Health Alliance has collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and this makes logical sense because that is Dr. Dazak's area of expertise. But this line from the piece looks really bad four years later because we now know that COVID-19 specifically sprang from the concoctions of that specific lab as a result of their gain-of-function research on coronaviruses and animals. Those dots are now a little too easy to connect, but they weren't back in 2020, which makes his opinion piece look now very much like a cover-up, if you ask me. And in case you forgot, there were countless experts claiming the virus came from a market or that it had randomly or just naturally jumped from animals to people in the wild or specifically from bats, like in a cave or something. No, it was experimentation, an intentional modification of a virus to preemptively prepare for something so deadly. And if you ask conspiracy theorists, this was biological weapons development. Either way, though, you can see the ethical dilemma that this research poses. But good old Dr. Dazak was saying, no, look over here, everyone. And, and the American government and, and media were saying, look, everyone, Trump is really bad. Just don't pay attention to anything else. Dr. Dazak said of this hypothetical illness, disease X would probably be confused with other diseases early in the outbreak and would spread quickly and silently, exploiting networks of human travel and trade it would reach multiple countries and thwart containment. This connection of thwarting containment and the disease, uh, exploiting uh, networks of human travel and trade, shows you that preventing human contact, travel, and commerce were a central part of their plan all along. And spoiler alert, it's still their plan. Pay attention. He said, Disease X would have a mortality rate higher than a seasonal flu, but would spread as easily as the flu. It would shake financial markets even before it achieved pandemic status. In a nutshell, COVID-19 is disease X. This was written four years ago, and it's as if Dr. Dazak was writing the screenplay for COVID-19 when he expressed all of this in the opinion piece, but there's that one line about financial markets that reeks of a savior kind of complex that we must be able to do what we must do in order to save our financial markets. But what actually happened was that their strategies and prevention and mitigation were the actual disease against the markets. The lockdowns and tyrannical measures broke the backs of countless economies around the world, not to mention small businesses who were absolutely ravaged by these ensuing recommendations. And this is the veil that so many can finally see through. The globalists 
wants to create a one-world system. The world cannot be composed of, of numerous individual autonomous systems. We must have unified standards, a single currency, one governing body. For that, that is when all of humanity will finally achieve the nearest experience to utopianism, heaven on earth, if you will. This is what Dr. Dazak said next. The looming pandemic will challenge us in new ways. As people try to evade quarantines and misinformation campaigns and conspiracy theorists ply their trade in open democracies. You see, freedom is the problem. That's the big problem. In a public health crisis, people mustn't be able to wander about and to speak freely. Therefore, anyone who speaks against us must be labeled a conspiracy theorist who's wickedly spreading misinformation. Again, this was written four years ago at the outset of COVID-19, so just consider how these terms and this mentality was vastly leveraged against us, we the free. Dr. Dazak said in February 2020, pandemics are on the rise and we need to contain the process that drives them, not just the individual diseases. Plagues are not only part of our culture, they are caused by it. Again, you see, your freedom is the problem. Your humanity and your community and your fellowship and all your little friends and families, you are to blame for plagues, pandemics, and more. If you agree with the sentiment, there's only one solution. Control by globalization. Yet the world's strategy for dealing with pandemics is woefully inadequate. Across the board, from politicians to the public, we treat pandemics as a disaster response issue. We wait for them to happen and hope a vaccine or drug can be developed quickly in the aftermath. In other words, we must institute these systems and processes now before disease X strikes. It can't be reactionary. It must be preemptive. Now, I would love some clarification on this. Does this mean that, that we develop by gain-of-function research numerous vaccinations which preemptively inoculate the public to supposed diseases? I mean, this is basically what we do to our children in a way with these childhood vaccinations. Or does this mean that we, that the vaccinations are preemptively developed and, and they're just ready in the case of deadly diseases and viruses? Well, four years ago, Dr. Dazak said, discovering and sequencing them should be a priority. A simple case of know your enemy. In the aftermath of SARS, research on coronaviruses originating in bats has discovered more than 50 related viruses, some of which have the potential to infect people. This information can now be used to test for broad-action vaccines and drugs. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the United States is working on a universal flu vaccine that would cover all known strains of influenza, a universal coronavirus vaccine, an Ebola virus vaccine, and others will also be needed. And I would be willing to bet our global authorities make these vaccinations an absolute requirement. Because, you know, it's, it's the moral thing to do. It's, it's loving your neighbor. It's the safe thing to do in order to keep yourself and others safe. Remember all of that? Look at this next strategy. Disease surveillance should be focused on farmers, rural communities, and anyone who has extensive contact with wildlife to look for unusual illnesses, test for novel pathogens, and work with people to develop alternatives to high-risk activities such as the wildlife trade. 
yes, uh, your lower and middle class citizens will be totally receptive to surveillance. Not really, but you get the point. We have to do this in order to prevent bad things from happening. So trust us, we're, we're the good guys here. Absolute power has, has never been corrupted, and, the, and there's, there's no way that you'll, you'll find in, in, in your history books, because we've, we've scrubbed those too. But Dr. Daszak concluded the piece with this. Pandemics are like terrorist attacks. We know roughly where they originate and what's responsible for them, but we don't know exactly when the next one will happen. They need to be handled the same way, by identifying all possible sources and dismantling those before the next pandemic strikes. As if there cannot be a more manipulative way to control people, Dr. Peter Daszak evokes our emotional connection to terrorism to strike fear in the public over potential sickness. This was written at the outset of COVID. This was written at the tail end of the development of these global health initiatives. And now here we are, four years later, still dealing with the, quote, expertise of these global elites. And the 2024 World Economic Forum is just wrapping up in Davos, Switzerland, where they've just discussed repeated concerns for disease X, coincidentally, as we head into an election year, just as before. Now, the World Health Director, Tedros Ademan Gabriasis, You've probably seen him and, and heard him in the last few years. He's, he's walking to the venue when some independent journalists, independent journalists, bombard the man with questions that he refuses to answer. Okay. Dr. Adnan, do you believe that lockdown should always be rejected as a public health measure? Can we talk later? What time? I'm happy to arrange a meeting with you, sir. Do you believe lockdown should be rejected as a public health measure? When do you plan on releasing Disease X? You know, Event 201 basically predicted this, well, simulated the coronavirus pandemic before it happened, and then it came about. So, like, I've got a feeling you can't know when this Disease X is coming, which you keep talking about. Mr. Tedros, what is Disease X? Will you condemn vaccine mandates and lockdowns as a public health intervention? Do you think the man... Yeah. The World Health Organization once actually, during the coronavirus pandemic, you changed the definition of herd immunity. I would love to talk can, can you. Ask, can you tell us why? Is Do that you apologize for what you did during COVID? And should people have to go through disease X with you now that you say it's 10 times worse? Sir, it's a simple question. Do you condemn public health interventions like lockdowns and vaccine mandates? The slogan for the WEF agenda this year is rebuilding trust. Surely to rebuild trust, you should answer these questions. Yeah, we can all switch sides, that's fine. Dr. Tedras, this is your chance to apologize to the world for your role during COVID. Would you like to take it? It's okay to get Do we have to wait me to get everything wrong in disease X? Do you think the vaccine mandates are wrong? You got everything from mask mandates to vaccines Sir, wrong. Our lockdowns do you bad. want to apologize? Our lockdowns are bad. Or do thing. we have to suffer? In Australia, we went, we had the longest lockdowns in our city, and that was based on your advice. You don't want to apologize to Australians or anyone? What do you say to the families of those who have lost loved ones? who died as a result of all these vaccines, the likes of Pfizer, Moderna, which what you about pushed. Excess, excess deaths. 
What about the current excess deaths? Do you want to talk about those? Do you take any responsibility for people who died because of the policies you pushed? Why do scientists and doctors who oppose vaccines get silenced? Are you part of the reason why they've lost trust in the WEF and everybody's finally know who you are and what you stand for? Thank you, Dr. Tedros. For do you think you'll win? And when you don't, what do you think will happen to the globalists? Well, just like the rest of them, they come here, the slogan is rebuilding trust. Yet what do they not do? They don't answer simple questions from the public. If you want to rebuild trust, my advice is that's a good place to start. When the public have questions, start answering them. And quite frankly, we need to bring back some common sense. Common sense is gone. And it's time for the people to wake up as to who these people are. I don't necessarily agree with everything these two either claimed or questioned uh, Tedros on, but we need more of this. More people need to speak up. More people must be questioned. More of these elites must be held accountable. Uh, these facts and the information must be shared. And as Americans, but especially as Christians, we must resist tyranny disguised as medical morality. Speaking of the supposed experts, 1440 reported last week that 2023 was the hottest year in 173 years, according to scientists from the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. It's extraordinarily ironic because while I was researching all of this information, my family is snowed in and it is six degrees outside. Uh, anyways, here's what they reported. The rise in global average temperatures in 2023 was just shy of the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit set in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Now, what they're trying to say is that the climate efforts are working. Let's keep going. The year 2023 saw global average temperatures of 14.98 degrees Celsius, 0.6 degrees warmer than the last 30 years. 1.48 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial average, that's from 1850 to 1900, and 0.17 degrees warmer than the previous hottest year in 2016. So the global average temperature last year was almost 15 degrees Celsius, which is about 59 degrees Fahrenheit. And listen to this horrifying statistic. That's half a degree warmer than the last 30 years. I, I, I know. And, and that's, that's one and a half degrees warmer than it was in 1850. Now, that's, that's actually worth noting. They're, they're reporting that before the creation of all these fossil fuel-dependent factories and vehicles and engines, the average temperature all that long ago was only one and a half degrees lower. Now... Again, they cite the, that last statistics to try and, and make their case, but inadvertently, I think, shoot themselves in the foot that 2023 was 0.17 degrees warmer than the previous hottest year in 2016. That means that eight years ago, it was warm, and then it got cooler. And then guess what? It got 0.17 degrees warmer and of course, this minuscule elevation is due in, in whole to the co-signers of the Paris Clim Climate Agreement when 
in Realityville. It's just because the weather can't be influenced or controlled. It just moves in waves, literally. If and only if you can remove yourself from Fantasy Island, in the real world, if you study climate change activism, and I'm talking on an academic level, you understand that all of this is merely an exercise of power, control, and money. That light bulb comes on for people when they realize how much climate progress comes at the sacrifice of personal liberties and economic stability. And then everything that I'm saying begins to make sense. Well, that's going to do it for me today. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you are meant to be. And we'll see you next time on We The Three.